My name is William Riccio. I'm a professor here. Uh, and it's really an extraordinary night because uh, three of our alum are back. This is something we should have started years ago, but now it's going to be a feature every semester. Bring them. We'll wait until we're done. <laughs> sure it's worth good it. point, good point, yeah. And it happens to be also a day when uh, we had an information session, so a lot of folks who were looking at CMS, I'm not sure, I think this was planned well in advance of that session, but good timing in any event. Um, so let me do a quick introduction. The, there are you know, detailed bios out there, so I'm not going to go on this too long. And what I especially want to have happen are these folks to really tell you about their work um, in particular. So let's start with Rekha Murti at the end there, who is Director of Projects and Partnerships at PRX, Public Radio Exchange. But in fact, she wears many more hats and is someone who's, uh, my impression of her job, both from this bio and, and just chatting, is it's sort of a very fast-evolving terrain where she's constantly able to redefine her remit. We'll talk about this, but one of the things, one of the ways we used to brand our program was that we were preparing students for jobs that don't yet have names. And um, even when they do have names, that there's a process of redefinition or whatever. So Rekha will tell us a lot more about her work there and background at NPR before she came to us at CMS. Probably an example of someone who came with a pretty clear vision of what sector she wanted to work in, and so, no, <laughs> not, okay, okay, coincidence, mere coincidence. But I'm so glad it looks like that. <laughs> it looks absolutely coherent. Uh, next to me is Sam Ford. Sam is Director of Audience Engagement at Strategic Communication and Marketing firm Peppercom, based in New York, but Sam worked a wonder of a deal where... Um, basically created the job, in a sense, and was able to say, like, look, my expertise is understanding academic discourse about this sector, and companies like Peppercom need to understand that. So I want to, I'm putting the words in your mouth, but to the effect, you'll correct me too, but um, <laughs> basically, like, I want to spend a lot of my time gathering insights in the academic community and parsing that back, translating that back to things that, that the industry can, can use. And by the way, I want to live in Kentucky, not New York. And it worked. Yeah, so far so good. Uh, so that's a great story. Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Hi. Uh, Coming friend. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, Sam is someone you might also know as one of the co-authors, along with Henry Jenkins and uh, Josh Green, of uh, Spreadable Media. Um, he has another book on the survival of the soap opera. And he just won the Digital Communication Communicator of the Year Award. By PR News is by the granting PR News. Well, yeah. I'll take it. I would take it. That's a great award. Um, and on my right is Parmesh Shahani, who I last saw in in Bombay. In Bombay, and he is. Uh, and before that, in Utrecht. And in Utrecht, where we promise to meet in a different city every time. And it, <laughs> it works. It works. That kind of romance. Although we'll maybe cite them back. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, so it was really fun. I was reading. I was traveling somewhere, and I don't usually read the Financial Times, but I'm on the airplane, and I'm reading the Financial Times, and damn if it isn't Parmesh's face, one of the 25 Indians to watch, you know, the movers and shakers of India in the Financial Times. He runs an incredible operation in, in Bombay, the Gudrej India Culture Club. Um, the time I spent there was remarkable in the sense that we went to a lot of places, sometimes with Parmesh, and you were ill for some of the time. But... Every road, every cultural road in that city connected to this man. It was remarkable. It was really and truly remarkable. Um, he, are you also still editor at large at Verve? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 
And he's here now in the States this semester as a Yale World Fellow, which is a really incredible program. It's world leaders uh, who hang out with one another and sharpen their world leadership skill sets. Um, also, a yoga and fighting um, with General Stanley McChrystal, amongst others. <laughs> and they do, like, so just in the Berkshires, and they were doing Aura. Auras? I don't know. I'm out of stuff. Uh, also, a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, TED Fellow, Utrecht University Impact Fellow. Uh, and he's someone who's, we were talking about this earlier today, uh, so he's one of the examples of a person whose master's thesis also came out as a book. Uh, and and by came out, he means came, came out. Gay <laughs> <laughs> Bombay, Globalization, Love, and Belonging in Contemporary India. And as you know from the contemporary uh, Indian scene, this is really an important work to have still in print, mm. and uh, mm. if it's allowed in bookshops, still? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay. My doubts about the nationalist regime, but hey, there you go. So what I'd like to just do is start by having these folks talk a little more fully than I did about their work. And maybe also, well, first about their work, and we'll come back and cycle around about the transition. Let's start with the work. So, Raven, you can just jump in. What are you, what are you actually doing? <laughs> so I said, I promised William that I, it wouldn't take too long, because it is kind of all over the place, but also kind of coherent. Um, my role is, actually currently, is as a production coordinator and kind of distribution coordinator for a new podcast network that PRX is launching called Radiotopia. Can I plug the Kickstarter please, campaign? Please. We have a Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> um, but up until the road there has involved a lot of um, distribution channel forging. So, for example, early on I started, um, I helped launch an iTunes paid sales, um, paid album sales business for PRX where we became a record label for pretty much all of public radio to um, sell pieces and past episodes in the iTunes store, not podcasting. Um, and then I've also spent a lot of time working on um, mobile apps in design and business development and also just simply awareness raising in public radio about mobile apps. Um, and now really I've kind of migrated over to this new and exciting area um, which is called, we call it aggregators, aggregation, third-party distribution. And what it is is basically radio migrating from broadcast onto various digital platforms and really trying to ma figure out the best user experience for listeners now. Um, and so aggregators like TuneIn, Stitcher, even Pandora and Spotify, even though they're not known for their spoken word now, um, they could be in the future. By the way, did I even say that I work, this is all within the public radio sphere? That's basically what PRX does. Um, so, but public radio, we define it in a, an ever more blurry way with each passing month. Um, so that's my big, my big focus these days really is um, new platform distribution. And just to amplify, I mean, this, we had an event last week, uh, thanks to the MacArthur Foundation, where we had um, digital editors, digital strategists, digital interaction designers from the New York Times, Le Monde, Al Jazeera, Vox, Buzz, uh, Vice, the works. And this, and the, a couple of the leaders in the field, I mean, this came through loud and clear, like it's all moving to apps, it's all moving to new platforms, they're all in a frenzy at that level, unsure what to do, and you guys are, what you're doing is really exemplary in that space, so it's... Um, yeah, I mean, public radio is in the crosshairs, technologically, demographically, yeah. politically, and so 
but it's obviously a really important and valuable thing. I mean, something I very much believe in as a media institution, um, and so I really, what PRX and I do is really trying to help shepherd it into whatever new areas it should be to reach people. And you've been out, what, like 10 years, huh? It's been 10 years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sam, you've been out a little less, like eight years, huh? Am I right? Yes. 2007. 2007. So, okay. uh, so what are you really up to? Well, very importantly, if you're going to give a plug to the Kickstarter campaign, you need to get a more proper plug than that. Well, right. I didn't want to uh, be too. But I am. I'm forcing you. Oh, that's true. You are the PR guy, <laughs> aren't yeah, <exactly>. you? <laughs> Actually, how well, did you, how did you say it? Like, I need like, <laughs> a URL. And a, no, uh, yeah. You should write it down okay, on the so board. Radio Topia <laughs> is a podcast no, network launched by PRX and uh, Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. We just reached our first goal of $250,000 wow. to help fund this network of seven amazing storytelling shows. We call them shows. We usually don't say podcasts except when we want good SEO because we don't love the word. <laughs> <laughs> That's the term of art. Um, and we are now, actually probably tonight, um, going to announce stretch goals that are really awesome, onboarding three amazing new shows, and we're also trying to get 20,000 backers by the end of the campaign, and we're just over 7,000 at my last check, so please help. But it's been amazing. We, are, we were just at the Kickstarter offices yesterday. Is that enough? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But it makes a great segue. I just wanted to, to ah, mention... I get it. Ilya Vedrashko, how are you, sir? Hi, Ilya. Oh, my God, hi, Ilya. <laughs> it's like a family reunion here. Yeah. Right? Um, but speaking of family reunions, I just wanted to say uh, Kickstarter, while he's no longer there, uh, former CMS are very foundational in sort of helping uh, set up Kickstarter, uh, from former Brett Camper, another one. Oh, my God, how did I not call him? And I, and, uh, I don't know if... And speaking of Kickstarter and CMS, uh, Ivan Asquith, uh, another uh, fellow alum, uh, w- was the uh, mastermind and architect behind the Veronica Mars Kickstarter campaign and the Reading Rainbow uh, Kickstarter campaign. So uh, certainly a lot of CMS history, I think. I have absolutely no history with Kickstarter, although I did contribute to the Veronica Mars campaign. And you will contribute to the Radio Tokyo. Oh, absolutely. Every absolutely. Dollar it only launched yesterday, and I just, I've been in travel ever since. <laughs> Um, but to get back to your question, William, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's been an interesting last uh, seven and seven years and some change. Um, I uh, came to CMS straight from undergrad. Uh, I, my background was in journalism, particularly rural journalism, and uh, I, my grandmother was a society columnist. Uh, does anybody know what a society columnist? My sister's mm-hmm. a society columnist. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and society columnists, I'm from a small town, 400 people. The building I moved into when I moved here had more people in it than my hometown. <laughs> and uh, uh, my grandmother uh, wrote this, the McHenry News, and it was basically uh, potluck dinner at church this weekend, uh, you know, the old man at the end of Henry Lane died last night, that sort of thing in the newspaper every week. And when I was 12, uh, she fell ill and asked me to take over. And it was, it was me and uh, about 12 uh, uh, 60 and 70 year old women uh, who wrote the society columns in the Ohio County Times News. So that was my uh, uh, initi- initiation into the media sphere. But uh, I decided in the early 2000s, journalism was a tough place to, to be. And we were talking about this new idea of convergence. And I thought, I'm not quite sure what my career path uh, would be here. I'm a first-generation college student, and uh, 
couldn't really move back home and, and, and do too much mooching, so I had to figure something out. And uh, grad school seemed like a good idea, which actually <laughs> seems kind of strange now that I think about it, but I ended up uh, uh, here at CMS and uh, at a very interesting time working with Parmesh and Ilya uh, and a few fellow grad students to create a new idea for a research project, which was called the Convergence Culture Consortium, although it wasn't called that when I came here. Uh, but, th- but we had uh, a lot of uh, companies in the media industries and the marketing world who were coming to CMS and were very interested because so many of the grad students here and professors here at MIT had been focused on uh, new changes in the, in the media uh, landscape and uh, looking at it in ways that the, both the media and marketing industries were really caught off guard by these changes and really didn't understand. Uh, and we thought, well, how can we have a more sustained conversation if, if really those folks are turning to cultural studies and media studies sorts of professionals to hear insights? How could we translate some of what we think, but not just what we think and how it could help their immediate goals, but our orientation? How could we help them think about a different way of thinking? Uh, and that research group uh, uh, gave me a chance to stay on, Parmesh, like Parmesh did, graduate and then stay on and help manage the research project. So after I graduated from MIT, I got the chance to, to teach and stay on here. But that uh, uh, got me introduced to the marketing world and ended up meeting Peppercom. They were a PR firm traditionally and trying to do more integrated marketing beyond just PR. Um, but were caught off guard by this world where... Uh, Suddenly, A, their audience could publish, their, their clients' audience could publish, but also B, the clients were expected to publish. So companies were expected to tell their own stories and not just buy space uh, from the media or try to earn coverage from journalists. And they didn't know how to do any of this. And they realized that the answer might not lie in the marketing world because they were trained to do what they knew how to do. And uh, so I was really intrigued by that question. And I said, but there's one problem. I have no background in marketing and I don't want to become a marketing and PR professional is not really uh, of interest to me. And they said, great. Uh, and they said, what's important to you? And I said, well, if you're hiring somebody for academic expertise I uh, and focusing on thinking a different way than the marketing world does, I want to be able to continue to do that. So we carved out a position that's changed names a few times. It's currently director of audience engagement, but I spent a third of my time uh, consulting with Peppercom's clients, which are a wide range of different companies, mostly not in the media and entertainment space. Um, spending about a third of my time doing academic work still. So uh, uh, I teach uh, at the Pop Culture Studies program at Western Kentucky University and uh, publish a lot of university press type stuff that has nothing to do with any of my clients usually. Um, but I, I am focusing some. We'll get in, we can talk about this some on things like ethics and empathy and listening. Uh, that do draw on the marketing world work that I do. But then they give me a third of my time to do what they call in the, the, the marketing world thought leadership, <laughs> which is a creepy term to me because I thought, like, how do you lead people's thoughts? That sounds so <laughs> intriguing. But, uh, That's where PR comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. 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 Shaping the mass. Yeah. And, and so part of the idea behind that is there's a very uh, – small amount of space in the marketing world to not just talk about your day-to-day client work. And that's they, they sort of allow me to play in that space. So a good chance to write for places like Fast Company and Harvard Business Review and uh, Inc. Magazine and places that are focused at a business audience, but to bring arguments, hopefully, that are kind of new to that conversation and try to push those uh, those forward. So uh, uh, right now, it's my it's my life is about balancing sort of those three, uh, those three-thirds of my time and uh, plus two little girls like like Rekas, and that's a whole other Can situation. I actually, I actually want to say that there are a number of commonalities, including the two little girls, <laughs> but um, 
a couple of things you just said very quickly. I, I just have to point out. First of all, I love that you started the whole thing with a story because obviously, you know, I'm in the business of stories too in a different way. Meta. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but also, you know, the, what you said about the title, PRX originally wanted to hire me as director of business development. And I pushed back because I felt like there were there was a whole set of assumptions and qualities around that title, whereas I knew what I was going to be doing would be very different and very dynamic. Um, projects and partnerships is clunky, and actually they've been asking me lately what I want my new title to be, and I'm it's going to take forever because I just can't describe it. But then the other, just the other thing, the thought leadership, I do want to say that I've been very fortunate too that at, at PRX. That is a big part of what we do, however you want to call it, um, that I've been blessed with being in, in, encouraged to be parts of advisory committees and conferences and panels like this. So The titles are a funny thing, especially when you are trying to forge ahead with this creating your own job. So they hired me as Director of Customer Insights. And that was the title that they had come up with for a position before they met me. And then we got into meetings, and I was meeting with a company that made faucets. And they said, tell us things about the faucet user <laughs> that we don't know. And I thought, like, i got to change this title quick. <laughs> uh, and so then they changed it to Director of Digital Strategy, which made sense because the space in which companies were trying to figure out how to talk to their audience was largely quote-unquote digital. But then you know, that kind of became a useless term, especially when we had more like digital design work and that sort of thing. We had a digital department, which I wasn't a part of. So uh, Director of Audience Engagement is the latest one. And I'm Maybe never we should crowdsource titles. Yeah, I'm never going to like this, any you of guys them. tell us what you think our titles should <laughs> be? That would be great. That would be great. Speaking of somebody who's hard to have titles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you the two titles I had after um, CMS, but just before that briefly, most people go from academia to the real world. Um, I went from the real world. By the time I came to CMS, I'd already started India's first youth website, then led to its spectacular collapse. Um, worked in television, worked on films, worked in fashion magazines. So I came to CMS as a practitioner and then said, okay, maybe it's time to learn some theory um, and figure out what it was that I was doing. And it was a great time simply because of all the things that make the program unique, which is it's not just an academic program, as Sam said. It's a chance to engage with um, and articulate our own research agenda in the context of a wider research agenda. Um, when we were there, there were a bunch of research groups. Now there are so many more, and that's really, really exciting um, to be part of this lab-like experience, often to be entrepreneurial and create these labs and to actually have a much more exciting interface with the real world. So, I mean, and after having this great experience, I did two things, which both of which involved me writing my own titles, um, both of which involved working in the corporate world. And that's another thing. I think a lot of people come to CMS and other, there aren't similar media programs, certainly it's unique, but other media programs in the world thinking that they want to create. And they might want to create either academic research, so papers, et cetera, et cetera, or they want to go out and be journalists, writers, media creators. But I think what I've tried to do in my, in my, in my, in my career post-CMS is to actually function as a curator, as a catalyst, and very broadly as some kind of a change agent. And, and in today's media environment, and if you see that's what a lot of us are doing as well, we might be creating stuff, but our real value lies in curation, our real value often lies in being that kind of catalyst. And the reason why we can be effective catalysts is because we've gone through this incredible experience of CMS. Um, so with that as a starting point, the first role that I did after I graduated was with one of India's largest companies, a company called Mahindra. 
which makes everything from cars to um, homes to everything. Um, and I was asked to write my own title, and I wrote, I gave myself the title um, Head of Vision and Opportunities. It seemed <laughs> ambiguous <laughs> um, to conquer the world. And my mandate was very simple. Um, it was how do we make this inward-looking Indian large corporation into an outward-looking global multinational? And I ran experiments at Mahindra. So one of them involved um, saying, if we're going to become a global company and if we're going to expand in markets like America, maybe we need to be funding culture. So for five years, we funded a New York-based film festival. It was the Mahindra New York Film Festival or so on. Another experiment was, if you're going to become a global company, we have to find global ideas. So we set out a small, we put, it, we put $50 million aside and said, let's do a small venture fund where we invest in global ideas and global things that will give us some skin in the game globally. So that was another experiment. Like that, we, we conducted a bunch of experiments which led to the group reformulating its own sense of who it was in the world. And I'm very excited that a lot of ideas that I proposed then are actually have, have, have come through and the group has really transformed. And meanwhile, I moved on to Godridge, which is another of India's large uh, <laughs> conglomerates. There are a bunch. I mean, there's not that many. So it's like four or five, and I've worked in two already. Um, at Godridge, uh, I was, you know, I continued this experiments, but now at a much grander uh, scale, at least in my own mind. Um, so while I was experimenting at Mahindra, at Godridge, I was cross-pollinating. Um, and I really believe that this is the... Um, and it, it all came from the kind of experience we had at CMS. So one of the things I run is something called the Godridge India Culture Lab, which William spoke about earlier. It's this experimental space where we put together the best minds who work on what it means to be modern and Indian, but across these disciplinary silos. So academia, business, the creative industries, policy, and so on. And we have a format agnostic conversation. So it could be a conference, it could be an art pop-up, in a 200,000 square foot factory which involves 150 collaborators. These are people who make giant robots, uh, people who dance, people who make fashion, people who do ARGs, um, artists, performers, and so on, uh, with thousands of people attending, and then we might destroy the building the next day in some grand philosophical statement of how life is about the moment and this is just a mere shelf and what matters is the experience. So that is as valid as a conference on what it means to be urban. So we format agnostic, but in everything we do, uh, our, our shape-shifting becomes an advantage, and we really try and take this question forward in cataloging and catalyzing what it means to be modern and Indian. But that's my main role. What I've done, and, and so I think of myself as this like left-leaning uh, sleeper cell within this large corporate world, right? Because since I've, 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 I've immersed myself in the corporate world, and then I spark change. So one of the things we've done is India is terribly homophobic still, and our Supreme Court can't seem to realize whether it wants to criminalize us or decriminalize us. Every few years, they keep on changing their minds. So one thing I've done is, like, say, Godred is one of the only Indian companies that is very LBGD-friendly and shout about it from the rooftops to influence the rest of the corporate India that, you know, this is how you can be too. Um, likewise, we do these experiments with human capital. I hated the way we were hiring people, and so now we go to college, college campuses and we hire people not on the basis of their marks, uh, we hire them on the basis of their dreams. And it sounds completely random, but we ask people to realize their deepest, their deepest desire, something that they always wanted to do since they were a child, and based on that, we give them jobs, and we also give them the money to make that dream happen before they come and work for us. So, I run all these like experiments on really reimagining at large what it means to be a company, what it means to be a stakeholder, how this, how companies can interface with society, with culture, 
um, and with other parts of you know society, uh, the world um, more meaningfully, uh, and it's 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 great. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, we should really, really, at least I personally would like to thank you and all of us at CMS for enabling me to have this kind of no limit thinking that CMS enabled because I don't think it would have happened had I not come here and had I not been exposed to the range of diverse things, whether it's colloquium, whether it's the labs or this, that all of them together have really enabled me to, in my mind, dissolve these silos and so I can do that effectively in the world. So I want to thank you. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So what's where's the trick? What's the magic spot? Is it just about the diversity of encounters or is it about the structuring of the... You said you came from a professional life into a sort of... For the theory, yeah. did that help to frame the issues? Was it the way we... Uh, just to know what we can do more of and <laughs> I stop think, doing yeah. So I, speaking for myself, I don't know, Simon, I think it's one bit is the curation. I think every year you choose a great class. Everyone is diverse. Everyone is so different from each other. And I think that's really good because, of course, we learn from y'all and y'all are fabulous professors, but we also learn from each other. Of course. And the fact that you've taken effort in having very, very different people in the cohort helps. I don't know if y'all agree. I mean, I don't oh, know. Absolutely. I mean, in our class, there was no one who was similar to each other. No, not at all. And that was very validating because I had always felt like I personally was afloat, that I had so many different interests and I didn't actually, out in the world, it was still a world that required a lot of specialization and I certainly grew up in a community and with parents who definitely expected that. My father's an Indian doctor and my mother is Jewish and so you can just imagine (laughs) doctor or lawyer. Yeah, I mean it was was really hard. I mean the whole time I worked at NPR my dad was walking around going, when are you going to grad school? When are you going to grad school? And um, I felt like I didn't know when I, I really didn't know what I wanted to be. I know it seems like I did. And, and I'm sorry, I'm going to really just take this yeah. on a tangent for a minute yeah. because I, you know, I worked in, um, actually I worked in Silicon Alley right out of college. So in 96 to 98, I was working right in the beginnings of the startup, the web startup world. I mean, at the time when they were hiring people who didn't know a thing about the web because no one did. So as long as you were smart and adaptive, adaptable, they would take you. So I left after four months of a job in book publishing, which was just really tired and old, and I went over to the startup. And I then went to public radio, and you know, there's a whole set of trajectories there. But all that to say that the jobs that I had by the time I was eight years out of school, they had prepared me for a master's program that didn't exist at the time. Yeah. And that it's funny because it's kind of the opposite of what you said, that CMS prepares you for the jobs that don't exist. Well, I did not... So I, can't, I can't tell you in 2002 when I was searching around and I found... And I was looking for grad school because my dad really wanted me to go. <laughs> and um, I found CMS. And then I arrived and it was like, oh my God, a diverse cohort of people with all these different interests. And I went over to Andrea's house and they had like a room devoted to books. And I had always felt like I was a pack rat. And actually, no, I was just a media enthusiast. You know, just <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, yeah. on so many levels. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's, you know, one of the interesting things for, for me, uh, as grad school was described to me by so many people, that is your undergrad experience is sort of liberal arts in its orientation, and you try a lot of different things, and then grad school's about narrowing your focus. And I thought, boy, that just sounds, you know, I felt the walls closing in. <laughs> and I, I applied to seven programs, six of which were very much uh, 
uh, more of that narrowing down, and I got turned down by all six of them. And I, 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 CMS was the program I wanted to get into anyway, but I think like I'm, I'm glad there was no real competition in a way because uh, or anybody had some big, <laughs> some big stipend to try to lure me toward. I don't know, but but it was it was great because uh, you know. If anything, CMS made it all that more vague what I was going to do next, but in a, <laughs> but in a good way. I mean, it's, you know, so people came and they said, like, they didn't understand I had multiple majors as an undergrad, and they said, like, we don't really know. Now that you're not going to be a journalist, we don't know what it is you're going to do. And then I came to CMS and like, we don't even know what that is. <laughs> they said, I can't wait for you to graduate because then we'll figure out what it is you do. And now they're really mad. So, but I think that, you know, but I think that's part of the the value of this program, and I think. Uh, it's something perhaps we could all work on is to help capture that narrative to put it into words what that is but to create this career path that allows for that sort of uh, flexibility and, and uh, to shift as the culture shifts and yeah. to try to be on the you know, I think of it as an act of translation sort of like you were saying Completely. with curation yeah. to be able to yeah. understand multiple spaces and be able to uh, have a conversation across them is what yeah. CMS really helped do because in our cohort there was such a wide range of people, but there, we were also, through all our classes and our research projects, interacting with people in other parts of MIT, collaborating with Harvard, collaborating with uh, folks out through Boston and Cambridge, and I know programs like Kurtz have been involved very much with doing projects in the community uh, from the very beginning of its existence. So uh, that idea of not being contained, you know, we didn't come to MIT to lock ourselves in an ivory tower and work on projects in the classroom. It was very much focused on half theory and half doing uh, and I think that that orientation was really important uh, yeah. to create that, entrep that yeah. entrepreneurial sense that you were describing. Yeah. If I can actually just add to the act of translation bit I think so besides the curation of the students and I, and I spoke about this earlier but I can't emphasize I think the fact that we also had an opportunity as master's students to translate our work for other audiences say with the labs for yeah. other academic audiences or for the corporate world um, in our quest to be a good applied humanities program. I think that's very vital. I think what we were doing 10 years ago, people now are finally getting in the corporate world and other places. But I think it's very vital that we did it. And I think it's very vital that we continue to do this, right? Because it's the world is moving towards a place where these boundaries are breaking. Of course, each boundary needs to figure out what it is that makes them authentic and meaningful. But I think living in a world where academia doesn't realize that the world is changing, is going to be silly because you know the corporate world realizes it's changing, policy realizes it's changing, and so on. So really being, I think CMS training us for that act of translation where we can say, here's our work, it's very academically rigorous, but here's what it can mean for you in government, for you in academia, for you in general, and here's what it can mean for you Wachowski siblings, so that you can take transmedia and make it into whatever you want. I think just the fact that we were trained to do this you know, makes the program meaningful and it makes what we do meaningful. And just to, I was at, I've been at Yale right now and people are talking about concepts that we did 10 years ago as if it's a new thing. Yeah. Like, but we were doing this it's, 10 years we ago. We were so cutting edge. It's, it's I mean, like, it's ridiculous. The right? way people talk about mapping now, yeah. I mean, I spent so much time with mapping and handheld devices 10 years ago before yeah. the iPhone and it's so cute that it's all <laughs> finally <laughs> happening and I mean, it's exciting, it's great, but yeah, we... I, I actually, I'm, I'm going to formulate a little theory in the moment, a little commonality here between the three of us, too, which is that even though our pre-CMS trajectories were all a bit 
not straight. You mm. know, we, we went from one thing to another. Mm. I kind of feel like there was some coherence for each of us. And, you know, for me, it was ultimately going to be public media and or technology in some form. But I feel like what CMS did be, by being so open and also broadening our networks and our worldview, giving us frameworks um, to think about what we had already done, and also um, giving us these ap- applied air- areas to apply those talents, um, I feel like we kind of emerged, we were better prepared to emerge as leaders in the same fields, whatever those fields were. Um, that, so it, that's where I, I feel like I could have stayed in, at NPR for much longer, um, but I think I came through CMS, learned really basic things like questioning the notion of objectivity or the notion of what does balance mean in journalism, um, or what what does it what is the difference between there's recorded sound as a medium and then there's technology which is broadcast. Just because broadcast is dying doesn't mean that the medium of recorded sound is dying. Those are things that I honestly don't know that I would have been able to parse out if I hadn't come to CMS. They seem so obvious now, um, but but I don't know if that resonates for the two of you yeah. as well. Yeah, I think there one of the things that's great is that there is a, such a range of resources that this program has brought together. And one of the things I hope I've conveyed is it's not just resources within CMS, but tapping into a much larger research network. I mean, some of the best contacts I made during my two years at CMS, and many of them are at universities all over the world, but met through this program. And I think it's because of the relationships yeah. that have been maintained. Things like the Media and Transition Conference, which is just a phenomenal opportunity and is very open for grad students to be a really active part of. And, and uh, uh, part of that requires terms of entrepreneurial spirit, grad students who are willing to say, I've got two years here, and two years is not a very long amount of time. How can I make the most of it that I can? But also, I mean, Rekha and Parmesh, who I've gotten to know very well, were both graduated by the time I started. And uh, that's another great thing about CMS is there's a, 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 an openness for things like this. That, yeah. You know, you're not a two-year part of this program and then gone. It's like Hotel there's California. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, you know, and that's a wonderful, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the number, I mean, the program's been in existence now, what, started yeah. in 99, so first graduating class 2001, so there, but... Yeah, I've been in touch with so many people across. A- absolutely, yeah. and, and the fact that there's been such an emphasis on maintaining those connections yeah. uh, is important because, yeah, I stay close to my cohort, but I stay close to a lot of people who yeah. work even in school at the same time as me. I'm not yeah. sure the word Rolodex says anything anymore, but it's more <laughs> Rolodex, it's true. Yeah, if we can, can we just shout out to Ilya as well yes. because you were talking yeah, about being yeah. entrepreneurial and Ilya um, who's sitting at job. the back <laughs> uh, spend his time at CMS amongst other things ice skating and um, starting an incredible uh, advertising blog called Advert Blog um, which then became one of the world's most famous advertising blogs which then got him this incredible job and now it's enabled him to leapfrog into a thought leadership role in the advertising world so um it's, it's really a place where you can be entrepreneurial. <laughs> but I wonder if you're up next semester. <laughs> but I, you know, I think Reka's point uh, is a great one about uh, how there's some sort of similar ethos. Yeah. And I think part of that gets back to the curation that uh, the, the, the yes, committee. Yes, thank you here. for those two words, the curator and catalyst. Again, yeah. you validated something that sometimes feels I, out in the world, I'm not creating sometimes. So 
what am I doing? Yeah. And thank you for, for reminding me. I'm doing curation and catalysm. Yeah, and I think part of catalysm. But I think part of it has to do with uh, while people come from very different backgrounds, as you say, there's some sort of common spirit among a lot of the people who seem to end up naturally here, uh, both who yeah. choose to apply here and who end up getting accepted. And I think that's an important part of It's an intangible. But I think, you know, in my graduating class, uh, I mentioned Ivan Asquith, who went on to work for Lucasfilm and, and do a lot of work in the transmedia world. Yeah. But uh, uh, Jeff Long, who went on to Microsoft, uh, uh, Christina Drzajic, who went on to become a, a very heralded uh, head writer in the gaming world. Uh, and, uh, and uh, Amanda Finkelberg, who's now designing MOOCs for UC Berkeley, and you know all these folks who went into completely different realms, uh, but uh, I think are doing very similar sorts of things in the industry they took their their expertise into. And it's one of the wonderful things about yeah. the network because it's such you know if you go to a film school you know film people. If this network is so wide ranging and yet has a commonality that's. So one thing I just, I, we have a few minutes before we'll open it up to the floor, but um, so when I wrote to these guys, I said, these are the kind of questions, and I'm interested in the transition from being a student to being a professional, and I think it was you, Sam, who wrote back and said, well, that didn't happen at graduation. That happened while you were here. And yeah. I mean, that's that's maybe yeah. interesting to think about as well. Like, how did, you? I mean, you all, came, as you said, you all came from very different spaces. Yeah. You kind of had a focus, but you yeah. also were kind of looking around a lot. So... Was it was it things like the labs, or was it encounters with the, all the folks we we pushed through the colloquium series? Where, where did that happen with one another? I, I would. You mean like how did we find our where did you, focus? Where did, did, it, yeah. did a professionalization or a kind of different attitude yeah. slip in while you were already here, or did that emerge after graduation? I I, I said to you actually oh, just you, before. The, oh no 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 something else. I, the, <laughs> that um, my resume coming out of this program actually had a lot of the projects that I did at CMS, and I was a little. I felt a little weird about it because it felt young to be like, hey, I was in school and these are the things I did. But actually, I mean, working with Kurt on the Metamedia project, there was a lot of really applied stuff there. And, and a lot of it was self-directed with me and my collaborator, Andrew McCarty, who is now um, heading up the archives, the film archives at Wesleyan. Um, but so much of what I did in the labs and the research, I worked with Mark Lloyd, who is a visiting scholar who... Um, really actually changed my life. I mean, I, I've been in touch with him multiple times since. He went on to, to the FCC as the chief diversity officer. He's now at USC Annenberg. Um, he's really made a lot of waves in, in media policy. And um, the work that I did for him also was very practical, user experience design, project management, um, public presentation. I mean, you and Henry used to make us just present our stuff all the time. But now I feel there's like I can get up in front of people. You know. so, so, I mean, there's so much around the, re the research labs. I learned how to write grants so I could go to Paris. I mean, there's an incentive. <laughs> just, yeah. That, yes. <laughs> all of the labs really helped me professionalize myself um, and feel like I could more do all sorts of different things very comfortably. So where should we be? So we've got a couple of minutes. And, of course, the program has to keep changing to stay ahead of the curve. You guys are out there defining, as thought leaders, um, sort of thinking up the mm -hmm. future. Mm -hmm. What should we, where should we be looking? What should we be doing? 
Is it about process and we're doing that okay? Is it about domains that we need to be, new labs that we should be thinking about about starting up? I'm not sure if you're up to date with the current palette of, of labs, but there's yeah. new ones. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it has to do with making sure you maintain that, that orientation that has made the program so successful so far. And the projects have sort of, some of them have, you know, all of them change constantly. So even the ones that have stayed in place for a long portion of time have morphed uh, very regularly. And, and other projects have, have come and gone, but not in the sense of a failure, but in the sense of made an intervention at an important time. And in some cases, like the Convergence Culture Consortium that I mentioned, served its purpose and, and then for five, and years, gone yeah. for five years. And, you know, and, and I think... Uh, that sort of uh, dynamic aspect is, is really important because this is a program that 10 years ago was talking about what people are talking about today and one of the reasons I want to stay tapped into it is the idea that I can come here for conversations that people will be talking about 10 years from now. I think that that's an important element. But I want to get back to, to the comments you made before, which is part of that requires thinking about building what comes next the whole time you're here, and I think that's an important part of it. I mean, I came straight from undergrad to grad school with, uh, yeah, I did some journal, yeah, I did journalism on the side, but it was sort of, uh, it was a really an interesting introduction to move here. And Ilya and I were meeting with potential partners to the consortium before I started as a grad student. I was a year early, and I, you know, yeah. came in. And, and Parmesh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Parmesh, you were, I think you were away for the summer, but we were participating remotely. Sure. Here I am, you know, straight out of undergrad, trying to find the best cheap suit that I had to go meet with people and try to convince them they should partner with CMS. And I hadn't even started classes here. Yet. It was, but, it was, but, but it was very much the sense of... Uh, Learning to to sort of you know immerse yourself completely in a culture and a very uh, a very entrepreneurial all in sort of culture that I think was uh, part of the experience and 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 that that involves the classroom, but it also involves so much of it involves what happened outside the classroom and the amount of time the cohort spent together working on projects and arguing and debating the future of of media is you know where so much of the learning happened as you said somebody said from one another yeah. so much I learned you know from my classmates yeah I still think that's our strongest our strongest asset and our job is to facilitate that to provide frameworks to provide mm -hmm. vocabulary to yeah. let to just let you guys loose and yeah, I, I it's an easy job telling people the story <laughs> as they come into the program of how to take full advantage of that and helping students be able to be prepared to tell that story when they leave, I think is something the program has strived to do, but can you know can even continue to build up more. Because I could describe myself when I left as somebody straight out of grad school who'd never worked in the real world and had been in academic labs, but that wasn't true. That was underselling, to your point, mm -hmm. what I'd actually done here, which was basically for two years as a student, act as a consultant, and had had the chance to present papers and publish and do so many great things that uh, most programs would not allow, that's more of an apprenticeship model, would not allow you to, to do. And you know, the, to, to pr present with the faculty uh, in many cases and, and that sort of spirit. Yeah. Can, I, can I build on that? Yeah. So I have three things. Um, the first is I think we should really continue our culture of making. Ten years ago, there was no Make magazine and hacker spaces were like on the horizon, but we were doing this anyway. So we've now entered a world of making where suddenly everything that we do, which is doing by, you know, <laughs> by making stuff is now, it's the norm now. So we should really continue that, but take that to the future. What does that mean to continue making as we study, right? 
Um, the second thing I think is to we should really not lose our focus on ambiguity. That's what makes us who we are. So a lot of the people that you cited have uh, gone on, say, to games, yes. to jobs in game in, in gaming companies or the corporate world. But an equal number of people have gone on, I can think of Aswin, Sangeeta, and all, to become professors and on that academic track. I think one of the beauties of our program is that it enables you to come in, choose what you want, and then if you want to go into the corporate world, you can go this way. If you want to go into academia, it's a great space. So I think just providing that range of training possibilities for people to make what they want is 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 key. Um, and it would also enable us to stay on the cutting edge of, of research and attract the best kind of students. And third, and I think this might be controversial, but I think it's really time we had a PhD program. Um, um, because I think um, it's time to widen our net from beyond undergraduates and a bunch of master students and these labs to get those kind of scholars in. And there are there's such incredible people. There's so many graduates, for example, um, who might want to come back and do a PhD here. There's so many people who are doing great cutting-edge work um, who might want to collaborate. There's so many possibilities, whether with the lab, whether with conferences like TED, whether it's you know other things where we might have great synergies. Absolutely. And if you look at what people are doing as individuals, look at what Bezos is doing with his brain trust over there, you look at what you know Gates is doing with assembling the best people here. Um, there's all these things that we can tap into. But for that, I think you know we need to really reimagine ourselves as much bigger and as the world's leading interdisciplinary media program, and I'm wondering why we're limiting our imagination and not fulfilling it to its full potential. Can I actually? Here, here. So. <laughs> I, I'm loving all of this. I just feel like I, I want to be plus one everything. But um, I, I'd love to add another thing. I, I guess I have always believed that I, I love having an impact. I love feeling like I have an impact. It doesn't, I don't necessarily have to be the person whose name is attached to the impact as long as I get to participate in a real substantive way. And to me, being in academia, and, and I, I'm sure not everyone feels this way and that's fine, but to me, being in academia was saying, well, if I'm going to do this deep exploration, there's a lot of stuff that's so good for my own soul and my own brain and the, my own personal like journey through this life. But I also feel like there is perhaps a responsibility, if not a responsibility, at least some sort of, should be some sort of drive to have have the work that CMS does and the work that these amazing people are going to do for two or 20 years, however long your PhD yeah. takes. Um, <laughs> not, not yours, not yours. A PhD <laughs> in general. Not you, a PhD in general. If I come back to CMS, I'll finish it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, that, that if you're going to take your bright mind and put it to these amazing problems, our society is in such grave need of the kind of things, the problems we're solving, the sol solutions to the problems that we face. And the crossover is so critical to, I feel, and, and I feel that CMS really pushed that when I was there, and it has made all the difference for me. And I want to just finish quickly with one quick story, which is only is somewhat related. I wouldn't say it's necessarily impact, but it is crossover. When um, Andrea McCartney and I collaborated with a lot with Kurt's support and the support of other people at foreign languages and literatures at the time, um, we developed a handheld wa a walking tour for handheld devices 
Um, and it was a walking tour of Paris using archival images and things that we ourselves had gathered. And this was before the iPhone. And so here we were, and we went to an art history conference at Brown to present our work. And it was great. Like, you know, a lot of people were, you know, reading papers about deep dives into particular art historical things. And we came out and we showed basically a series of slides from the actual tour. And at the end, it, you know, it was very, it seemed to be very well received. But someone in the, in the um, audience tried to have a gotcha moment with us. And they started, like, dropping names, like Deserto and Mercier. And, and you know, you, clearly you guys just went off and built this thing. And you have no philosophical or theoretical underpinning or framework for what you're doing. You just are doing technology. And, and we were like, actually, and then we were able, thanks to the independent study that Andrea and I had crafted and our own, and the encouragement of the team here and the cross-disciplinary access that we had, we went out. Like, we, we had so much to talk about. I had read everything that, like, Mr. de Merpsier had written in the 18th century, and I knew all that. So, so that was a moment also where then the, you know, the curator from RISD came over and was like, I have so much stuff sitting in the basement that this could revive. And then you start realizing there's impact that comes from crossover. Yeah. So. There are two phrases that I attribute to William, and you can correct me if it's incorrect, but you use them a lot. So I don't know if you coined them or not. But, um, Own it. Uh, and one of, yeah, one of them was uh, pattern recognition. Uh, I mean, I know you didn't invent that phrase, but in terms of, in terms of from a cultural perspective, that one of the things, no matter what, where you're headed, that CMS teaches you to do is think about, like Carmer said with curation, to see things that are happening in the world, especially these confusing, developing spaces, and make sense of them. The other was applied humanities, which we haven't used here tonight, but I think very much, for me, when I heard that phrase the first time, spoke to what CMS meant to me, which is yeah. MIT is a culture of doing. CMS is in the humanities and very proudly so. What is applied humanities? And I think there is an activist is a loaded word, but there is a very activist orientation to the people who have come through this program, whether they stay in academia, whether they go into a, an industry to take what they've learned here and try to make some sort of change in, in the space they go into. And this is one of those like 10 years ahead problems because we, you know, we branded with that 10 years ago, or whatever, 14 years ago, got incredible pushback from a lot of our colleagues in the more traditional humanities saying, what's the implication? Like, what the hell are we? If, if you're applied, what are we? And it's like, well, maybe you're not applied, or maybe, you know, join us. Join us. Because, <laughs> like, in fact, we had very robust presence from pretty much all the, all the humanities sections of folks who, who did feel like extending their work into the world. I mean, they were part of, they were, they were our faculty uh, then. And um, it's funny because it's now, the circles come round, and now that the humanities are ever increasing, I mean, there's a lot more reflection in the, in the world of the humanities. The pressure is a lot greater. And this is finally starting to emerge as, like, these are, it's the questions that matter. It's not the sacred texts as much as the questions we put to those texts. And if we could put those questions to technologies, if we could put those questions to, to daily practices, like, yeah, the humanities are not only alive, they're vital. And, and that's what we've always tried to do. But it's funny how that language just stuck in the throat of, uh, of a lot of can I Can I bring in a Harvard comparison here? Because I know how at MIT we love comparing ourselves to them. Um, it's in almost everything. I mean, 10 years ago, we would feel really proud that MIT was so ahead of Harvard in everything. But I think in terms of humanities, Homi Bhabha at Harvard has really recognized that the world is moving in a particular direction. 
So it's, you know, they've gone out. So the, the humanity center at Harvard is now the Mahindra Humanity Center. Mahindra is a company I used to work for in India earlier. Um, they got a sweet deal. But the point is, Harvard has recognized that humanities, who would have thought that Harvard would be recognizing that humanities are moved in a particular direction? Of course, we can imagine that Harvard would brand it um, and move ahead on it. But seriously, shouldn't we be, should, shouldn't we be the ones leading that direction? So I feel particularly upset that you know they're moving in a direction with branding, with money, with all of this in a direction that we could have been moving maybe some years ago, but we didn't. So, but there's still hope because we have. <laughs> um, but how we, you know, I think how we catch on to that and actually move ahead is going to be vital. Well, you know, I just, I, I can't say much about this, but we just had our visiting committee. They come every two years, check us out, and it's a lobby session or whatever. And the the feedback, I mean, this, they gave the results. And the feedback uh, that I heard anyway was, was pretty much on target with that. Like, hey, these guys are doing it right. Support them. Support them. Yeah. Because right now it's kind of an uphill swim, but it's changing. I mean, the, the reorg has helped, and the new space in the Media Lab has helped. Yeah. Uh, and we've done, we continue to do a lot ourselves, and that's maybe perhaps the best way to do it. You do it with gusto when, you're, when you've got skin in the game. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's been... It's been a, a good run. I want to open this up. We're, we're over the witching hour in terms of opening this up for questions. So what do you guys want to know about these about these um, specimens, these survivors, these thrivers from the program? Desi. Okay, I'll start. Um, and this is actually for anyone who's at the open house session, uh, session today, kind of related to what I was talking about at one point then. But, um, Greg, at one point you mentioned specialization. Uh, Sam, you mentioned that this program is great for you because it allowed you to not have to specialize. Um, I think something it's the specialization I think comes for many not in a traditional way right so you go to law school to become a lawyer you go to medical school to become a doctor you come here not necessarily I think a lot of us come out not with a very defined job title and career but but an orientation that you sort of take with you and I think that is the challenge with that is it becomes a story, a narrative that you have to craft for yourself while you're here and as you come out. And I think that's, that, I mean, it's never going to be easy, but I think that's what makes it so valuable, which is I came here uh, to do a thesis project on the, the future of the soap opera because in the soap opera I saw this genre from radio that had been the sort of innovator of early television that was now struggling in a digital age. And I felt like this sort of encapsulates everything we're talking about in terms of media in transition. Um, but you know, I didn't become defined by that project. That project was rather an orientation towards something. So I think uh, figuring out that narrative of what, one of the things, everybody here comes seems to come to the program either beforehand or while you're here or both with a really eclectic background. And this very introspective question, which is to say, why have I done all the things that I've done? Because I guarantee you there is a common thread. 
And I didn't know what the common thread was for me. My uh, honors thesis in undergrad was on pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I, 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 I spent a lot of the time while I was here saying, why am I interested in the things I'm interested in? And how does that help explain the larger questions that I'm looking to solve? And then when you can figure out a way to tell that story, I think it's what uh, helps you figure out but also explain to others and help realize what it is you want to do. You know, Harmesh blurted out a word after you, after you gave your initial presentation, and Rekha said, oh, you started with a story, you know, and he said, and Parmesh said, meta. Yeah. <laughs> meta is what really it's about. Meta is, I mean, those of you in theory and methods, it's always trying to rise up above the detail and think of, you know, meta is, not to say the trick, but it's a great way to sort of see the trends, see the patterns, kind of be able to locate yourself and then jump back in and do something about it. But it really is a, a clarifying way to approach the this ever-seething, this frothy kind of churny space that we're in. I want to use a word that you showed me, even though I'm sure you didn't coin it, but I'm going to problematize this a bit. Because on one side, <laughs> I, I agree that um, the way I've, I've always worked is you keep the options open and you have to craft the narrative as you go along. Um, and <clears throat> I, but I also have found, at least personally, that has been really torturous at times. Like, there has been yeah. so much, like, who the hell am I? What am I doing? Which direction am I going? And there's also a lot of dodging. Like, no, I don't want to be director of business development. No, I don't want to be a marketer. No, I don't want to be this or that. And yet, at the same time, that's kind of, those are the roles that I end up playing that I also love. So I think, to a certain extent, you can, from the model of don't over-specialize, there's go ahead and, you know, I, I find actually the best way to do is just look out there for jobs that look cool. But then if you're writing your own job description, that's not always going to work either. So I, I'm, I'm not giving answers here, obviously. I'm giving the, the, the tensions that can end up in great joy when you find an employer who is willing to work with you to yeah. figure out what that is. And the three of us, a lot of this has to do with finding the right employer and then figuring out what it is you're going to do to work together. Yeah. Um, on the other side, I actually think it's okay to specialize to a certain extent. And when I say that, I mean, here's an example. At NPR, when I was there, everyone had their specialization. I was a producer. There were engineers. There were web people, also, you know, whatever. When After I left... Um, they, the producers were all asked to learn how to become photographers and videographers as well and to mix their own pieces. And, like, it was just insane. And, like, you know, people were – I was getting kind of the inner, inner scoop on it. And you know what? The pendulum has swung back. Producers get to be producers again. And maybe their lives were enriched by learning how to, to do other things, and maybe in a pinch they're going to do those other things. But, you know, just be prepared that, like, sometimes if you just stay a course that you like and that you want – the pendulum's going to swing back in your favor. Like, you're not going to be required to know everything. You might be allowed to just know one thing really well. Yeah, if I can add to that, Sam spoke about coming here with your orientation. Um, <laughs> I came here with my orientation. <laughs> um, and I'm going to, uh, but I mean, that's it. I'm going to use that to talk about something that happened here because I think it exemplifies what CMS does, even if you come here with an orientation. Um, so one of the first things that I wanted to do when I came here, like two man, two two days or a few days after that, I was like, I want to do the biggest ever South Asian LBGT film festival on the East Coast. Until then, it had all been happening in San Francisco. We we're like, let's just do this here for a variety of reasons. And I was like, I think I want to do this big festival. CMS and I have spoke to Henry, William, and Chris, whom I still deeply remember. Um, and, you know, n- neither of them said, no, they all said, this is a great idea, but, you know, you have to raise money, you have to organize this. You've only been here for a few days, but, you know. <laughs> um, 
here's how here's how you can do it. And you know, they they pointed me in the right direction and said, you know, someone said there's Catherine Wilmore, Michelle. I, I came to Michelle afterwards, but then there was Catherine Wilmore who was the vice president. Someone said, go talk to her. So I went to her. She said, I'll give you two thousand dollars. And someone said. Um, you know, you don't know MIT has an arts office, and you know they'll give you some money. And then I spoke to someone else, and then and then there was Michelle. I spoke to someone else. They said this is not really black, but I'm sure if you go to the Black Associate Black Student Association, you'll get some money. And I did because <laughs> it, they were like very welcoming. And then someone else said, you know, the only people who didn't give me money were the were the South Asians, uh, uh, which is interesting. Um, but you know, but the point is, CMS. What CMS taught me to do is they said, you know, if you have an idea. Here, this is like a compass. Like, go in this direction and find your own thing. We'll be there for you, but we won't spoon feed you with it. And it's the same with the programming. It's the same with everything. So, what I took away from this, in terms of my strategy for jobs or anything else, is I took away a, a set of skills, a set of problem-solving skills, a set of path-finding skills, a set of skills that I can now use anywhere. So, whether I work in the corporate world, or I work in academia. I know what it's like. I know what to go into a situation. I know how to break it up. I know how to dig for information and resources I need. I know how to build a community of people that are interested because you can't do things alone. And to build a community of people around you, you need to give them something as well. You can't selfishly hope that everyone will be interested in your project. It's also what are you doing for them? And CMS kind of teaches you how to build that 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 collaborative community because collaboration is about working in working with each other, right? And then to solve it. And I think these are invaluable skills in today's world. So whether you're going in the corporate world, whether you're going to research, they're going into government. For certainly government in this country and every other country needs these kind of problem-solving skills. I think CMS is actually a great platform to anything. So why are we? I mean, why are we limiting ourselves to a media lens or looking at it through that? I'm I'm, I'm seriously questioning. Yeah, thought leadership program. It, or you know, I mean, if media is so centric to everything else that we do, and it's about comparative and studies, we should really be preparing the next generation of you know world leaders. In some ways, so I saw CMS as, as yeah. a hub. Like yeah. I felt bad for students in some of the other disciplines at MIT because I felt like I got to take classes at the Media Lab and DUSP and in Earth Science. I was like teaching a course in radio production, yeah. and you, that was part of what I was supposed to be doing. Whereas these other students were stuck in their own discipline. Yeah, well, so I mean, go, go a step further. We were, you know, we can rip on Harvard, but I took a Kennedy School class with Nolan Bowie and. Yeah. Uh, oh, I took class at Harvard too. But took globalization <laughs> class. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was I, like, thank God. It was very much this idea of sort of tapping into. Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure the phrase still gets used a lot, drink, trying to drink from the fire hydrant mm. at MIT, but it's opening yourself up to a world of possibilities, but trying to carve out if you've only got two years here. I mean, that yeah. is a short amount of time. Yeah, but you realize that other students don't have it, and which is what makes y'all at yeah. CMS really special. Yeah. They don't have this. They don't have these skills, and they don't have this map, and they don't have the compass, which is why you should really value the fact that CMS gives you that and go out there and use these well. And sorry for being... Um, so maybe don't <laughs> specialize while you're here. <laughs> Go take a bunch yeah. of stuff. By the way, if yeah. there are some prospective students yeah. who are here tonight, yeah. one of the things I'll say is if this conversation makes you uncomfortable about CMS, then it's probably not a place that you should be. I, uh, that's one of the things that I actually think is helpful about this sort of defining the culture of a place that you go to. There's an entrepreneurial messiness yeah. about this the program. The ambiguity yeah. thing. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm glad that there are faculty lines here now and there's some institutional support in a way that there wasn't when I was here, but the one thing I never want to happen is to have that messiness 
go yeah. away because that messiness is what made this a special place. It should always feel like a startup. <laughs> that's the thing. And, uh, that's actually that's actually that's, a good insight. Yeah. That's, it's been a story. And if it stops feeling like that is when you need to... Oh, no, I'm sure William wouldn't mind a little more security sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as long as I get those long airplane rides, I can recharge. <laughs> That's okay. Other questions? Yeah. Really? Um, I, I was just wondering, um, I guess because you all have ended up in your own tri- your own specialized trajectories over time, but I think one of the most useful things about this program is that it makes you think comparatively across different fields at any given moment. So I wonder um, if you have found that way of thinking useful in your own work in, in the sense of paying attention to different conversations across different fields, and you can kind of port over lessons learned from one field to another. Greg, you were talking earlier about um, producers learning how to engineer their own sound, and that reminded me of now how journalists are being asked to learn code. Um, And so that happens because we're constantly thinking about these different fields and what can be learned from one to the other. So I guess just I'm wondering, has that been useful for you in your own paths? All the time, but yeah. I'll say uh, Grant McCracken, who is Mm. an honorary CMS faculty member in some He's still C3 affiliate. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it's still on his his, uh, email (laughs) signature. Now, Grant is, uh, he likes to to talk about serendipity and the importance Mm. of of serendipity and accidental information discovery uh, and, and what we do. And I think having that sort of cultural curiosity uh, is an important skill to take away from, from CMS and, 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 and move forward with. Uh, and, I, and I think that, that to me is, so one of the things is, it's why it's so important for me to stay tapped into the network of folks I met from here. Sometimes. Um, nice, nice, beautiful. Uh, but I, but I, th- you know, I think that's a really important part of this whole, uh, uh, th- this whole equation that uh, it's important for me to have continual conversations with my colleagues who went into fields other than my own because it's those conversations that help me continue to think differently about my work. And I've had a chance. I was uh, speaking at a conference for the tourism industry earlier this week and uh, was at the annual insurance executive conference uh, a few months ago and was at social media for utilities uh, a while back. I mean, you want to talk about a wild bunch. (laughs) But, you know, part part of what fascinates me is, 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 is entering those other spaces because here are questions that I wrestle with and I go into an insurance industry conference, and, the, and I come in to talk about some of the questions yeah. that interest me. Yeah. And suddenly, I'm hearing you know things about FINRA compliance, and you know all these things that are you know <laughs> new to me. And, and suddenly, though, understanding that these questions take very different shape yeah. as you enter different yeah. spaces. So I walk around sometimes. So when my daughter gets really mad at someone, she'll be like, "I want you to go doctor." Like for her, doctor is go to hell. Like. <laughs> <laughs> So I walk around sometimes, like when I rent a car, I'm like, you need disruption. Right? Like, you know, like I point at industries, I'm like, you are right for disruption. You are right for disruption. I'm not going to name any other industries. But in a way, it was the thinking at CMS, the idea that like we have, yeah. we were just disrupting because it made logical sense. Like that you ask questions of everything. And then, yes, you can walk around and you look at, the, like you point, I can point at like a sidewalk and be like, you need disruption. Like, Nothing has to be the way it is, and and that's actually kind of an exciting thing that I got from CMS. Yeah, and likewise, I've worked since CMS. I've worked as a venture capitalist, where I've at venture capitalist meetings, I've spoken about Foucault, 
um, which is interesting because most venture <laughs> capitalists don't use French theorists. Um, I've gone to, I've, um, I'm also in the fashion world, so as an editor at large, but also as a curator of specific fashion week events. And I'm able to understand fashion from multiple lenses, from the lenses of history, geography, interconnectedness in a way that I really couldn't earlier. Um, in, it's really helped my corporate experience as well because I'm able to connect, you know, first things within the corporation and also the corporations to other things. And I think that's the thing with a good, broad-based, messy humanities network that CMS gives you, right? It gives you that, gives you the set of tools that enable you to connect. Since, uh, since Sam spoke about Grand Kraken and Serendipity, I wanted to write another word, which is Plenitude, which is a list, which is a book that he wrote, which actually didn't get much traction. Grant wrote a book called Chief Culture Officer, which did really well, and in a sense has defined, I think to a certain extent, what we all kind of do in our different jobs. But Grant spoke once, and you know, since we're being uh, open and we're talking about um, the future of CMS with a sense of stress, I remembered this word, and I think we also need to remember that we are operating from a position of plenitude. So I, also, I don't want us to leave today feeling stressful. I want us to leave feeling abundant that, you know, it's, we've reached a point where we have so much. And how do we add to this plenitude and abundance? And maybe this comes from my Berkshire's retreat where I focused on raising my kundalini. <laughs> <laughs> but I really want to put that out there and, you know, so <laughs> that we should, feel, we should feel abundant and grateful for the fact that we've, <laughs> we've come so far. But I, I said when these guys walked in, when these people walked in, that I, I don't have any kids, uh, but I, I and I don't really know what it's like to be a parent. But I suddenly felt like this proud parent. That you know, is, gee, the kids have done well. It's, so my Kundalini is doing well. And you Kundalini. never wanted us to be doctors or lawyers. Either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other other questions. Please. I have a question. How do you define media? I mean, you talked about public radio and community columns and not marketing and format agnosticism and all sorts of other things, but how are you defining media and, and limiting media in the program? That is also a thought leadership program. Well, you should apply here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we take a really, I mean, just to speak for what we're looking for, it's extraordinarily broad. Uh, Palette. It could be, you know, interactive text from the from the 16th century. It could be. Uh, it, it's really broad. It could be stained glass windows. Uh, I actually read sidewalks for my thesis. I'm not kidding. Right, like right. I talked about sidewalks before. I read them. I mean that. Would... Yeah, your your thesis is exemplary and still in heavy circulation. Yeah, Lily told me. <laughs> so just say a bit about what you did. What what was media in your thesis? Well, I mean, actually, I did bump up against that question, and then I decided not to stress over it. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, in public radio, too, at this point, it's like, what is public radio? Um, what is public radio if it's not about the, the funding model and, you know... so and not about radio. And not about, <laughs> about radio. Um, but, yeah, the short of it, my, my thesis was about, um, about inscriptions on the street, um, looking at street media, how, what do people put on the street, how do they use the streetscape to communicate, you know, flyers, billboards, storefronts, graffiti, um, so authorized and unauthorized media, and, and yes, people said to me, well, are you going to count, like, a truck that has a logo painted on it? I'm like, sure, good idea, you know, or, <laughs> and even sometimes I talked about just, like, to me, media actually was even cleanliness, like norms of cleanliness. Like if, if, the, if the street wasn't well maintained, what was that telling us and what was that telling the inhabitants about the kind of place they lived in? 
Yeah. In that case, it's almost taking a style of media analysis or set of reading skills and applying it to anything can help yeah. analyze it through a media studies lens. And I think that's that's the key. It's again about the, the, the orientation you're approaching the question as a media studies sort of approach uh, can make it media in terms of you're treating it as a media text. So for me in my consulting work, it's clients who... Uh, never thought of themselves as publishers or never thought of their organization as a, a sort of publishing or media-creating entity before trying to come to terms with the fact that they are whether they want to be or not. And, uh, and, and you know, that, that's fascinating to me. And then I think uh, it also in the, the, on the academic side of my work, the work of spreadable media, which William mentioned earlier, is focused on the question of circulation, which is not every, most people don't consider themselves producers, but we're all on a daily basis circulating what can be considered media text as an everyday part of life and how do we make sense of those practices that I think benefit from taking an extraordinarily broad sort of approach to what is media. I think slash writing is media, right? Uh, certainly the, the writing side of the CMSW is, uh, is uh, very much a part of this lens, and that's part of the power of this program is looking at literature and writing as, you know, Every much a part of media as, as um, the mass media. For yeah. those who don't know, slash is that line between CMS writing. That's a slash. Mm-hmm. No, slash is also a form of slash is a form of of of, of uh, a fan fiction. Fan of fan fiction <laughs> that transgressive. That, that, oh yeah, I'm not suggesting that you that. write slash fiction of the CMS <laughs> professors and the writing professors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Although that would be a very interesting application. Yeah. <laughs> so, Stop, right there. I'm ready for that one. See? Maybe all the professors should put their hands up so they know who to write about. Well, I think think Henry used to talk about doing uh, Scrooge Marley slash fiction, so I think that was a good application. Very good. Other other questions? Oh, hands full. I'll ask you if no one else has other questions. Okay. I'm curious. Did you develop any kind of habits, whether that's like personal habits or like not habits of mind? Bad habits, bad habits. <laughs> 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 Food trucks. Um, during your time here, it really helps you mm, My good habit was dressing up in a habit and walking all around. <laughs> <laughs> that was my nun's habit. Actually, um, Harmesh taught me. Harmesh <laughs> said to me once, he was like, stop saying, this is actually very sort of superficial and sort of not, but he was like, stop saving your good clothes. <laughs> For special times, wear them. <laughs> and actually, like that's something I still carry with me. It's like part of the self-presentation that's and good. the way. I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm doing a great job of it these days. <laughs> I am postpartum, but you know. But no, I, I actually um, just very quickly. Yeah. I, for me, it was developing a personal process for learning new things, especially around um, new technologies. Like um, the class, uh, I, the class that we had, where we had to basically we were given a video camera and said, "Go off, learn how this works." learn the editing software. It's like those are, you know, in the research labs, the things that we did in MetaMedia, like learn how to organize an archive and use it in the way you need to use it. The systems and the tools that I adopted then, it became, I kind of now have a somewhat of a, per, I get impatient learning new technologies anyway, but I do have a personal process for doing it that I didn't have before CMS. Yeah, well, for me it was asking for help, and I think that's very important. Um, you won't know everything. But there are people around you who want to help you, but you just have to ask. And you know how you ask, how you frame it is whatever. So if you, you want to learn something, you can go ask someone. 
So I can go and ask Michelle, how do I apply for a grant? I don't know how to write it. Maybe you can, you know, you can give me an example or whatever. So it's just but to, to have that thing of, to have, to have that, that, that humility to ask for things that you need. Um, I think it's a very good habit. Yeah. Honing your curiosity skills, and, and in yeah. particular, I, I had colleagues who were interested in questions that on the surface weren't interesting to me until I understood that they were asking, the, 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 the subject of what they were looking into was not necessarily of interest to me, hmm. but it was through taking the time to understand the questions they were asking of sidewalks or yeah. the art space or you know, things Possets? that... And spending a lot of time in a very wide-ranging set of theoretical classes where you're reading pieces that you think, I don't know why I'm reading this or why this will be important to me as part of the grad school experience, too, to stretch your mind, to force yourself to be interested in things you aren't on the surface interested in. And, you know, when people came to this program and didn't push themselves to develop those skills, yeah. It seems a shame because they got so little out of what the program yeah. had to offer. Yeah. And on a lighter note, I developed this bad habit of coloring my hair blonde and waxing my chest. For some strange reason, that was the thing. Um, I've, I've, grown, I've grown out of that. <laughs> and I realize it's so much more successful. <laughs> Good. Okay. I, I love this idea of, of industries and companies that are ripe for disruption. I, I love to hear from each of you what if, if there are particular industries or places where you, if you could like insert a CMS graduate student into them, an industry or company uh, where you see that, which is sort of another way of asking the question, if you guys were in the program now and were graduating, where would you be looking now and be like that? Perfect. Should mm. I go first? <coughs> I think venture capital for certain. I, I I cannot imagine why we don't send people to the VC industry. A lot of venture capitalists um, are investing in media, investing in different kinds of media. A lot of venture capitalist funds, which are mostly men, white, and from Harvard or other kind of business schools. I mean, lots of Stanford because a lot of it happens on that coast. Um, are so non-diverse and I think they would really help having an anthropologist on board or having some kind of cross-pollinated CMS person on board who can just give multiple perspectives. So I don't know why CMS students don't apply to VCs. I think if all the VCs I've spoken to don't know that CMS exists, if they knew that it existed, they would certainly consider it and encourage people from it. I think it's a great way of actually generating impact in uh, in in a world you know, if 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 fifty if uh, if like say forty nine out of fifty VC investments fail, the ones that succeed really do well. But it's it's a chance of getting skin in the game and really creating a position of influence. So I think VC would be ripe um, for a CMS intervention. Yeah, I think the world of entrepreneurship in general and the dialogue that's happening around it could benefit. I think of the piece that you wrote for the Spreadable Media Project about yeah. uh, two Indias uh, and. Yeah. and the idea that we have such great technological potential. MIT is a place of great technological potential, and sometimes we apply them to the most banal or uninteresting of questions when there are so many really important issues to solve in the world. And I think a CMS orientation, particularly in our focus on audiences and our focus on sort of uh, uh, the, the reception side of, of media techs, bring a lot of value to a lot of other spaces. And, you know, I would apply that as well to really uninteresting Places, at least from like uninteresting from my perspective, like accounting and insurance, and you know that I mentioned before, that are ripe for disruption in terms of how they think about their long-term reputation, how they think about not legally 
but morally and ethically what they owe to their audiences. Or HR, for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been doing some incredible work in HR in India. You should have told me 10 years ago I'm doing HR. I would have said, are you nuts? But like, I, I love yeah, it. Yeah, that's to say what you I said about in India, yeah. especially yeah. to not only hire based yeah. on marks. Like That is so transformative, a yeah. concept in India. Yeah. And when we go and we pitch this to people, these are MBAs, fully grown MBAs, they weep. They weep on campus because the first time someone's told them that you are more than the sum of your grades. And it's very powerful. I believe you. I, I um, <laughs> so, and why aren't there more people doing that out in the world? So, I. Here, so here's some fields. I mean, yeah. now this is literally like me walking around with that pointing the finger, go to doctor. <laughs> yeah. I was on Amtrak yesterday. So our transportation networks. I would love to see someone. Um, yeah, and, and I'm not necessarily. I'm, if you media here, I'm not necessarily thinking media in any traditional sense. Um, shopping malls. Yeah. You know, retail, like any consumer experience. Actually, Doc Searles at um, Berkman, he has this whole um, VRM, vendor relationship management um, project that going on with this idea that like just the way that we get to interact with companies should just be completely inverted. Yeah. Um, you know, and I wasn't kidding about car rental. Um, pledge drives, <laughs> although actually I'm working on that, you know, uh, you know really making it a, a more joyful and, and interesting experience. It's an appropriate week for that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I apologize on behalf of my, my well, so what about What about the government? I mean, well, I, I, think, I was just about to yeah. say, because you said it before, yeah. and I think government absolutely, absolutely government in every at every level. At every level, but even at a simple digital level, I mean, there's, I mean, I think that, you know, the healthcare website, I think, finally works here, but there's other things um, in which that CMS people can add not just digital, but just a a broad human, a humanities-based um, approach to problem solving, um, and we don't mean in the White House. We mean like all over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk about your um, disruptive um, actions about heteronormativity in the corporate sphere. Oh, what was that again? <laughs> oh, how I go about telling people that they, uh, when I enter a room, I call out the breeders. That bit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, let's, if there's no more questions, I'll talk about that. But let's leave that as a tidbit for them to wonder about. <laughs> other, other questions? I didn't place Michelle here, and this was all organic. Shall I ask yes, Of course. Um, I'm going to bring up a potentially gauche topic, oh. but um, money and funding. Um, mm. After CMS, of course, um, we, I had a classmate last week <laughs> After she graduated, to, she wants to do freelance work. Um, I'm sure you guys have, have done that or have had classmates that do that. You guys all seem to have these jobs that allow you to work at universities and at a place and, and all in a, these many different positions. But how, especially for a lot of these jobs where people have made up titles or you have to convince someone to do it, um, how do you deal with that issue of getting funded? Have you seen instances where people have trouble with that? Um, any, I don't know, anything in sort of that? I have some stuff to say, but I can go next. Yeah, I think one of the things to keep in mind is if you don't find yourself with the benefit of a position at first that allows you that uh, multiplicity of, of titles and functions, it's really important that you maintain it outside of your, your work time. I, I think one of the things a lot of CMSers struggle with when they come out is you do this very broad sort of set of skill development and then you go into a very specific job. And 
it's sort of like well, the argument I made to Papercom when they hired me, which was you want to hire somebody because they think differently than the marketing and PR space. But if I become somebody formerly of the academic space in five years, uh, if I get separated from that conversation, I'm, it's no longer a relevant sort of selling point, uh, you know, speaking virtually. So I think it's important to maintain that. Uh, if you don't have institutional support on your own until you are able to cobble together uh, whatever the structure is that allows you to do that. And we've all had to do some degree of that, I think, which is uh, trying to maintain, to use that thought leadership, take another break, uh, sort of uh, label that part of what CMS allows you as a narratively to tell a story about yourself is this entrepreneurial, non-traditional sort of background and I think it's important to, to figure out a way to maintain that story. And a lot so, of so when you walk, so all of all three of you have, have strong personalities. You're 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 quick on your feet. You you're you're smart. But in that situation, when you walk into a new employer, I mean, you want a job, and here's someone that looks like a pretty good job, and they're probably going to pay pretty well if you if you get it. So where do you get the chutzpah? Where do you get the gumption? Or how do you? Is it is it about just confidence that you have, or is it about walking in and knowing like? This is too small, and I can really add something to this place. And telling them that, saying, "Look, you can hire me for this, but I can do more." Like, does it come from a conviction, or does it come from having like been around the block a few times? But I can, I can share. So, I think yeah. any job they'll only pay you uh, less than you deserve, and you should only work more than that. So, you should, if you're getting fifty thousand dollars a year, you should be, you should make sure from your own self that you're providing service worth hundred thousand dollars. That's a good job, right? You, you really need to work. Uh, to justify what you're doing, and much more than that. So people should always feel that they've got a great deal with having you, which means it's a given. I mean, you're seeing our random titles or whatever, but <laughs> you're not seeing like the hours of hard work and the other kind of compromises behind that. In my case, my, my current job, the reason I'm allowed to run a culture lab, which spends money and blows up factories and warehouses in the pursuit of some random thing called art, is because I generate value for my salary on branding, on digital advice, on shampoos, on human capital, on organizing leadership conferences, um, on running a fellows program. I do a lot. I generate so much value in everything else that I do that running the lab, which is the most cms part of what I do, is in a sense a bonus. So they're not paying me for the lab, they're paying me for the whole package. And I think if perhaps all of us, we all have to do a bunch of things to justify our job and justify that salary, but you should be doing that in anything. I think anything, whether in work or in life, you should always give more than you get. You feel happy at the end of it, and other people certainly feel very, very happy. Um, but it is, it's, it's a struggle, um, but it's something that at least I'm very, very conscious of. So I work very hard. And I always work way more than I feel I should be working. And sometimes I, I end up doing things that I don't particularly want to do. Um, I also sometimes complain about it, but then I do a really good job. Like <laughs> Early on, I did not want to do business development for mobile apps. Um, I ended up loving it. Like It was so cool yeah. to educate stations across the country on what mobile apps were. I mean, it made me feel smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you, know, you end up having yeah. to be flexible. But I, I very much yeah. agree with that. That and there often is yeah, an edge yeah. of like, can I, am I proving my value? And yeah, but if you can demonstrate that, if you can have a few, whether there's low-hanging fruit or whatever, you can have a few hits, then you build that trust, right, in people. So then they trust you with more ambiguous projects. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a job. You need, to, you need to show that you're good and you're valuable and how you generate that. I mean, the more you can do that, 
the more leeway you have to do more experimental stuff. But I was also lucky, like when you asked, like, did I walk in and demand that I be, I deserve to be paid to help disrupt public radio? I was fortunate that I that at PRX, um, the head of PRX, Jake Shapiro, just he already knew that he he has a policy of just getting good people in the door and figuring out how to use them. And so sometimes, like I said before, it's about finding an employer who's just open to that so that you aren't always feeling like you're swimming upstream. Yeah. Ilya probably has something very interesting to say about this, actually, because I know Baba really is that kind of person. I took a man out to observation. When people hire open positions, they usually have open positions to solve something very specific. Right yeah. now. Can I say that if I had been hired with the job description of launch an iTunes distribution service for PRX and earn revenue, I would be out of it. I would have been out of a job two years later because it makes no money. We still kind of run it on the side, but it makes no money. But it gave us a lot of, of credibility in other ways. Um, but yeah, if I had gone with that job description, fixed job description, it, I would have been gone four years ago. From a, from a storytelling standpoint, Pempercom, my employer, always tells its clients, take a problem-solution approach. Whatever industry you're in, you're there to solve a problem. Describe the problem, explain why it's a problem, and then show you sort of how you're going to solve it. I think from, from your point, Ilya, that's sort of our job in a very different realm coming out of CMS. In some cases, it may be a problem folks know they have. In other cases, it might be helping them understand why they have a gap and, and how they're currently approaching things, whether that be, I think there's a whole lot to be said right now around the sophistication and understanding of big data, for instance, or privacy issues, uh, or you know, transparency and disclosure as you enter a space where the audience is doing a lot of the circulating of media messages, what does that mean? And, and these are areas where companies do, don't yet under, necessarily understand the full implications of these things, or they don't understand they don't yet know what they don't know. Yeah. They, they're sort of enamored with certain sorts of questions, and we can help raise issues that they haven't thought about yet. But it's always important, I think, to Ilya's point, to translate it in a way that speaks to what they care about. So to talk about what a company owes its audiences ethically is not necessarily a conversation that's going to get at the heart <laughs> yeah. of the boardroom. Yeah. But to talk about reputational risk or crisis, potential crisis or framing it, yeah. 
in a lens through which corporations know how to evaluate discussion. I think the same could be said of being disruptive in academia, right? Yeah. Uh, so I certainly don't, you know, our orientation is focused a lot on industry, but taking these same sort of questions and approaching uh, academic spaces in, uh, in new ways. Is and it's no different from learning how to write a concise thesis statement, right? I mean, in that sense, it's not, it's pretty much you have the same skills to look at a bunch of stuff, you have to distill downwards. So I don't see any difference between whether you're going to work for business or academia or policy or whatever, I think you have to do the same things. Just have to use slightly different language, but it's it, it's effectively the same process. Can so. I ask you guys? Because I've had this, I've found myself in some some situations, professional situations, where I feel like a bull in a china shop. And some of that is the strong personality thing. <laughs> but I never felt that way when I was here, first of all. Like, I felt like <laughs> the discussion and the debate was very, everyone just got into it. And, you know, but I find that sometimes that same intensity of inquiry and, you know, So is the rest of them very dumb after we graduate from MIT? No, they just, I, I often... <laughs> That's the question. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, people are more sensitive and yeah. different styles. Sometimes it's resistance to change, but sometimes it's maybe just... No, but it's true. You, you, you have this high level, style. you have this high intensity of discussion, debate, passion, whatever, and then it's, the world isn't like that, no? Yeah, no, I'm wondering if, what your experience is in, in that. <laughs> Having a conversation bigger than the conversation the other people in the room want to have is usually the biggest challenge. And yeah. it's, it's also well, not... It's like over, you know, a lot of people would sort of feel like over beers, I'd love to have that conversation with you, but right now I'm trying to solve, this as Ilya said, like mm -hmm. today's immediate need. And so I think part of it is translating what it is you care about ultimately down to the point of the day. And some of it's saying, and uh, are you all familiar with the serenity prayer? So I don't mean this in any way religiously. But I spend every day with clients <laughs> thinking about that, which is, <laughs> I'm in a meeting right now, and would having this conversation yeah. have any possibility of affecting change? If not, then you know, bide your time and wait until there's a good conversation to be had. Because uh, you know, coming out of an academic orientation, going into other spaces, and being overly preachy to them doesn't necess isn't necessarily going to affect change. And so thinking yeah. about it pragmatically, it's picking your battles, finding the yeah. moments where you think you could make an intervention, yeah. and then framing it in a way that speaks to what they're concerned with at the yeah. moment, but then helps them see why they should be concerned about what you're talking yeah. about. I think a valuable skill, and I was in D.C. recently with the Yale Full Fellows, where amongst others we met um, Bill Drayton, the founder of Ashoka, um, who's one of my world heroes. Wow. And he talked about how Ashoka has reframed its whole mission um, into creating people who have this particular skill. And the skill, the words that he used were cognitive empathy. He's like, what the world needs most in today's world is cognitive empathy. Hmm. And we're, they're reimagining Ashoka to generate cognitive empathy in people, in their fellows, in their staff, and everything else. Because he's like, we realize that we're equipping people with all kinds of other skills. But in today's world, if you don't have this sense of empathy, how can you identify what the client needs or what that, you know, a, a bunch of academics at a conference are looking for? I mean, you know, if, if you're so into your own work. Well, that's a media uh, problem, too. Forget about industry and corporations. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. that's the polarization that happens and the fear and, and people going into their own filter bubbles, all yeah. of that. I mean, and how do you train for cognitive empathy is something that, you know, we can look at what Ashoka is doing or we can formulate our own. But this is really the thing because in a world where now there's data pouring, big data, small data, medium data, whatever it is from everywhere. How do you process that to make it re relevant, meaningful information 
without this, I don't think it's going to be possible without an empathy lens. So I think that's something that... Well, speaking of serendipity, it gets back to what I thought within the humanities made CMS, at least my experience with CMS, so uh, exciting. And that is, you know, my understanding of the humanities traditionally was a bunch of people who each have their own sort of very specific research orientation set of questions and they're all sitting in their individual offices working on that and they're teaching classes based on that and they don't talk to one another and they don't ever collaborate and I think that sort of orientation wasn't there with CMS there was so much energy around both the uh, the community of professors who were involved with the program at CMS and across the country and then among the students which yeah. is what are you working on what am I working on yeah. hey, what could we do together yeah. and I think uh, that opened my mind up to the idea that, you know, we weren't just there to teach the people, for instance, from the business world or from other disciplines what we had to impart on the world. How much could we learn from them? And if we don't go into every one of those meetings thinking they have a whole lot to teach us, then uh, yeah. it's, you know, it's to our detriment. Yeah, and academics often don't have this, this quality. Can I actually, so. uh, there's one story. Um, so two nights ago, um, we were at this big Radiotopia live event, and I was talking to one of the, the show producers. Um, she produces a podcast called Fugitive Waves. And then we had the BuzzFeed audio editor there. And the BuzzFeed audio editor used to be a producer, and she actually, she said in the course of the conversation, she's like, sometimes I just wish I were just making this stuff again. It comes back to curator, yeah. catalysts, and creator, that yeah. tension. And I said, I sat back and I was like, okay, I'm about to go all grad school on you. Like, I felt like that was the only way I could, like, warn them that <laughs> I was about to go deeper. And I used a very important CMS concept for me, which was that every emerging genre, just like every established one, needs a body of cr criticism and boosterism to accompany it. And that you should feel really great about what you're doing because at BuzzFeed, when you write something about one of our podcasters, obviously we feel great about it, but you are also helping raise podcasting as a genre and, and ma helping mainstream it. Uh, but it was it was funny that I felt like I had to first step back and be like, okay, this is not your normal vernacular concept I'm about to share with you. Here comes Howard Becker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other, any final questions? Um, I see Michelle looking at you with very <laughs> piercing eyes. What? I forgot. What was that? What is it? What, what I was definitely do what you're doing in the corporate sphere when you're a grad student. Oh, so what? So there's lots that I do. Say so what? What makes you want me to? Humor. To oh. Oh, right. So this is just something that I do on a personal basis because it's one of my many life missions to make the world uh, more LBGT friendly. I operate, I choose to operate from a position of homonormativity, uh, which means that I just assume that the world is okay with LBGT issues. Um, and But I also get, I go on the offensive. So I often, if I enter a room full of straight people and make comments about how they're all breeders, um, I haven't done that with y'all so far. Uh, how does um, that work out for you? I'm like, hi, readers, how's it going? Uh, any more on the way? Because, you know, things like that. And then they're like, they're slightly offended, which is good because I want them to feel uh, slightly uneasy. Um, and so on and so forth. I just assume everyone at work is, is not straight. Um, and so I was like, oh, are you coming out as straight? I had no idea. You know, I just... Um, and, but I think it's very important because I think it's very important for like um, heteronormative society to realize that there are alternatives. Uh, a large part of what I do now is, and this is how I generate 
value or maybe not if <laughs> for the culture lab and for Godridge is um, I'm the face of recruitment uh, for our um, for our corporation on all MBA campuses so within the first five minutes and I go to MBA campuses and dress like crowds of 500 uh, MBA students and within the first five minutes of addressing them I not only out myself but I, I, I say um, and, is, and I'm so glad to be here at Indian Institute of Management Lucknow where rumor has it all of you are so gay friendly I believe you're at the gay friendliest college on campus so I want you to all give yourselves a big <laughs> round of applause uh, for being this and you know what they're so used to when someone tells them that they all clap <laughs> but that's incredible because after you've clapped for yourself for being something you can't feel homophobic <laughs> Suddenly they feel like, you know, I guess we're all, we're all friendly and this is good. Well, it's also a marketing ploy, right? It's you a great marketing ploy. Everybody else is doing it. I just assume it and then I just assume it. I make them do it and then they do it and then they are. So then they get out and say, oh, we're like, you know, so gay friendly. Um, so there's 500 students after 500 students and like, you know, I must have touched a few thousand students. It's a small drop because we have 1.2 billion people in India. But, uh, but I think it's really important as... Um, as, as, a, as a strategy. And I know why Michelle wanted me to s share that with you all, but... Oh, okay then. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our panel. There's a reception following this over in building E15, third floor, so the old media lab, third floor. We'll head that way. If you don't know where it is, follow us. Hello. But I just want to thank Reka and Sam and Parmesh for... And Ilya, we're going to get you next spring. Should we, if, if anyone's like tweeting pictures on them, should we just put all our Twitter handles so you can tag us? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's Rekha 6, right? Yes, yeah, it is. Good. Yes, Tarmesh. Sam underscore 4. That's right. I can only say for a little while. I can only say for a little while.